If you're a pop culture junkie who loves TV, film, music, comedy, and other really important stuff, then you've come to the right place. Get ready and settle in for Classic Conversations, the best pop culture interviews in the world. That's right, we circled the globe so you don't have to. If you're ready to be the king of the water cooler, then you're ready for Classic Conversations with your host, Jeff Dwoskin. All right, Carmen, thank you so much for that amazing introduction. You get the show going each and every week, and this week was no exception. Welcome, everybody, to episode 194 of Classic Conversations. As always, I am your host, Jeff Tawaskin. Great to have you back for another Classic Conversation. Today, I'm diving deep with writer and comedian Josh Gondelman. Hailing from Boston, living in New York, previously a head writer and executive producer for Jesus and Marrow, spent five years writing at Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, four Emmys, multiple albums, etc., etc. I was with Josh at the Laughing Skull competition when he won back in 2010. We reflect on that and how his career just exploded after winning that comedy festival. Amazing stories lie ahead with Josh Gondelman, and that's coming up in just a few seconds. And in these few seconds, I want to remind everyone of my amazing, nay, out-of-this-world conversation with Angela Cartwright. That's right, Penny from Lost in Space, Brigida from Sound of Music. Ah, such a great conversation. Check that out. Also, the bonus episode of Crossing the Streams on our YouTube channel. Over 100 episodes of Crossing the Streams. TV binge-watching suggestions await you. But that is for another time right now. My conversation with comedian Josh Gondelman. Enjoy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, I'm so excited to introduce you to my next guest. He's a touring comedian. He spent many, many years at Last Week with John Oliver. He's won four Emmy Awards, a million other things. Not going to go through it all so we can actually talk about something. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Josh Gondelman. Welcome to the show. So good to see you. Thank you for having me. So good to see you again. It's been a while. Josh and I met in 2010 in Atlanta, Georgia. We were both at the very first Laughing Skull comedy competition. There were two main differences. One, I went up and you never heard from me again. Josh (laughs) won and has now done all those things I just listed and a million other things. (laughs) It was, I mean, it was great. There were so many people there that I either met there or like became better friends with there, like had met before, but really hung out with that weekend that are like, it was just such a great time. People that I like really, you know, consider good friends now and and have followed their careers and stuff. And it, it was like, a very exciting experience and a lot of fun. I remember hanging out with you. My mistake that I made, I brought my wife. And I and I don't mean there was a mistake to bring my <laughs> wife. But this was laughing skull for me. I way over prepared for like the three minute thing that I was supposed to do. Mm-hmm. And, you know, I just went through it over and over and over again to the point where it was just like, there was no looseness left in me at Mm -hmm. all. And I'm about to go on. I'm looking at the brochure. Everyone's been on Comedy Central or HBO. And here's me. I've been nowhere (laughs) except here. (laughs) And then my friend texts me. I was on the show with with, uh, Tom Simmons. And he texts me. He goes, is Tom Simmons there? That's my parents' favorite comedian. He's the best. I'm like, thank you. I'm about to go up again. that's so funny. (laughs) I get out there. You only have, it was like three minutes maybe set. 
I get out there, I've run through my set 450,000 times, and I say a line that I've said, and you know, doing comedy, do these jokes over and over again. (laughs) A joke I've done a million times, I say the line wrong. Oh, no. Worse, it gets a laugh. But I know the part that comes after it now doesn't make sense. (laughs) Oh, shoot. Oh, that's so rough. I feel like that happens so much, I think, because like when you feel like locked into something, because I do that too, or it's like if I were just going up or on a regular night, it would also, it wouldn't matter, right? Like on a regular set, if you're just doing a, a spot at a comedy club or an opening set or even a headlining set and you say a line wrong and the next part doesn't make sense, you can either jump ship on it or you can talk through it. You can say with the audience, oh, I fucked that up. I said it wrong. I, but here's like what it is. And like, it's a live moment. But when you're in a competition like that or an audition or something with which is so unnatural as a a venue for performance, then it's like, it feels so high stakes. Whereas any other night, if that same thing happened, you're just like, who cares? I'll never think about it again. (laughs) Right, exactly. Because I remember thinking in my head, I can't recover. It's over. It's done. Right. Because you're performing for like a specific result. And it's so stressful because I've always felt like auditions and comedy competitions and stuff when you are performing with like, I have I'm playing to win. It's so hard because like even a good set feels bad and a bad set feels worse. Right. And I was I was so intimidated by everyone around me. Like I kept thinking to myself, how did I get here? Everyone everyone seemed to know someone or be you know, and like and like yeah. they must have just I must have been in the uh we got we, we need five more people category. <laughs> but I mean they must have really liked your tape. Like I think that's like there's a there's something real about that, right? Is like when you submit to something and you get in knowing no one, you're like, Oh, they must really want me there. They're not doing a favor for someone's manager or like I think right. that that's exciting. In a way, yeah. But when you're there it seems like everyone's, you know, rubbing elbows and stuff. Totally. And then I, I think I kind of felt like, you know, like there's always that one table at a wedding or bar mitzvah. Mm-hmm. There's just the leftover people. <laughs> <laughs> right. I felt like, right, right, I, felt like, like I was at that table. You, you're like the only person from someone's old job that's at this event. And then you're talking to like their family podiatrist or something. Right. I remember hanging out with you and you were crushing and, and I remember loving your comedy so much. Oh, thank and you. Uh, my wife, I said, I'm talking to Josh Gondelman. She goes, you're talking to Josh. Like she remembered you too. Oh, that's so nice. It was a fun weekend overall. I remember we were, we hung out at the Claremont Lounge, which is this uh, crazy... I don't even know how to explain it to people. It's like we're strip clubs. It's a strip club in Atlanta, Georgia. Yeah. But it's like the D-level strippers. and But that's what it's supposed to be. Right. I think there's this kind of, there's this, it's like a, like, indie strip club, if that makes sense. Like, I feel like most strip clubs, and I don't know that much about the industry, but like, it feels like most of them are technically independent, right? Like, they're owned. They're not part of, like, big national strip club chains. But this one has, it was like, a, almost like a punk rock strip club where the dance had like less of a kind of uh, mainstream strip club aesthetic and also it just like was kind of a grimy place like in terms of like oh yeah people can still smoke in bars in certain places in the south which I totally lost sight of living in the northeast and and, like so there was just that that level of like oh people are just like ripping butts and drinking cheap beers uh, and and I don't even remember like a dancer performing the whole time that we were there. I just remember like the strippers being like around. <laughs> I remember one with so many 
tattoos on her mm-hmm. that was ridiculous and another woman a which i think woman. is kind of non-traditional i'm not like a big strip club guy but i think like there are people who have trouble finding work or you know because like the tattoos are like not industry standard or have not been in the past right and then there was another woman who i remember would crush pans under her yeah. dress or something i think her name was goldie she's like famous she's like locally famous yes. for that I, the one thing that this like is a rumor that someone told me and i don't know if it's true but it's that the the bartender, there was this one bartender who worked there for a while and was like, I want to give stripping a shot and tried. And there was kind of like a, a mild revolt among customers because she was too like conventionally attractive. And people were like, this isn't why we come here. We don't come here for the experience that you get at like a regular club. But it is, it's like an Atlanta institution. And I was still, I didn't know what I was supposed to get from it. <laughs> you know what I mean? Except for the experience of like, oh, I've never been to a place quite like like this before. No, it, and just for anyone listening, because it's it's hard to imagine, but if, if you were to say, oh, I was at the Claremont Lounge and two people died, I think the rea- the normal Atlanta, Georgia reaction would be only two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. It felt like the vibe was like the bar that Patrick Swayze worked at in Roadhouse. Like it had that <laughs> kind of energy, like like a sawdusty energy. And again, this is not to speak ill of the, the people who work there at all. It's just like, that is the vibe that they're going for is like a little dingy, I think. Oh yeah, don't mistake this last five minutes. This is a high recommendation to go yes, to. The- totally. It's like a real, it's a, a local, it is a local legend. Like I feel like every time I've been to Atlanta, you go, oh, I've got a couple, or like the show ends at 10 or whatever. And is there a place to go? get food around here and then every time someone goes okay but you've been to the claremont right like you're not gonna leave town never having gone there like it's one of those things though i feel like people who live there love to recommend to tourists and visitors right if like if you looked it up and there was like a three yelp review average that'd be high yeah. it's also atlanta is such a legendary strip club city that it feels like it makes sense that there is this kind of strip club counterculture you know what i mean like there's yes. so like there are so many it's like one of the places you hear about being like the most and biggest strip clubs in the in america so i get why there would be like oh here's the alt version of that because it's such a big industry so alt all right so everyone everyone google that and check that out <laughs> Going backwards in time just for a moment. Yeah. Before Laughing Skull, mm-hmm. you hailed from Boston. Yeah. What was it, where were you comedy-wise before Laughing Skull? So I was still living in Boston. I'm in New York now. I've been here for basically 10 years. And I was in Boston. I had done a couple of festivals... I've done the Boston Comedy Festival a couple of times, I think. And that was that was like an exciting step forward because that's also a contest. And I was I had done that and I think probably at that point I'd like gotten to the semifinals. And so I was starting to feel like, okay, I'm progressing. I had started to work at a bunch more of the clubs. I was probably, I guess it was 2010. I was like kind of ensconced mostly as like a, a middle act, right? Like the the kind of the person that goes on before the headliner after the MC. In Massachusetts, I, I was working pretty regularly on the weekends, but I had hit a point where this festival became like a real turning point for me. And it wasn't just what the festival did, like, because I, I did get to go on the road a lot more afterwards. I got a college agent from the festival. And so I started doing a couple college gigs a year. 
but it less that like it changed my life materially and then I was like on the road full time which I was not but it changed the way I perceived of what was possible for my career and it made me think like okay I think I've achieved everything I'm going to in Massachusetts and I was at the time at the time of the Laughing Skull Festival I was 25 and I'd been doing comedy for about six years and so I was doing pretty well but I was still a long way from kind of cracking into this class of New England headliner which are like there are so many legendary comics that still are working regularly around New England and I could see how far away I was from like being business wise like you know cracking into those booking rotations in the same way of like oh you're a headliner and honestly my comedy was not there like these are guys that had been that were like 20 year stand-up veterans by the time I started and so there's just no way especially because I was like a young kind of not like dorky guy and I just didn't have the like the stage presence and the the like feel for the craft that people who had been doing it for so long have I had some I had a few good jokes but I wasn't like I didn't have like headliner poise at all especially going into a rough room and going like okay I'm gonna headline this youth hockey benefit at an Elks Lodge and I'm just like people are gonna want to see me and I'm gonna command the room and I was just so far off from that Uh, even if you know I and I and I didn't have that like rock solid hour either that you need for those kind of gigs but I just didn't have the chops either so I was like in I was an emerging comic in the New England scene kind of thriving but like saw a pretty low ceiling for my development over the next few years and was starting to feel a little bit like okay what am I really doing Sorry, but I got to take a quick break. But I do want to thank you all for your support of the sponsors. When you support the sponsors, you're supporting us here at Classic Conversations. And that's how we keep the lights on. And now back to my conversation with Josh Gondelman. We're heading back to Laughing Skull to go deeper into his path to victory. And we're back. So as I remember Laughing Skull is that there were definitely people that were favored to win. Mm-hmm. And and I remember after I um, completely imploded, <laughs> you became, I remember my wife and I, we, you became the one we were watching. Oh, thank so we you. Were, we became Team Josh. I appreciate And that. I remember like just being there, just you listen to things and there was just some guy with all these credits and he was supposed to win. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? There's always a comic guy with yeah. that guy's it. And, but you just kept knocking it out of the park. Thank Almost you. Like, like just silently just crushing everywhere. And I remember at the final thing, this guy who probably started believing his own press, mm-hmm. right? He didn't deliver and you just blew the roof I off. I had a really fun set. I remember that last one especially. And I remember feeling really good coming off stage, especially because some of the judges were people of like influence in other parts of the industry. So I was just like, these people that I've been trying to get in front of for years and hoping to impress have just seen me have a really strong set, as strong as I was capable of having for sure. Like I had maxed out on my capability that night. You know, whatever, however good anyone can be, I did the best I could. And the audience responded like that. And I felt like, okay, great. They saw me under the ideal circumstances. And now if I'm not the guy they want, it's not because they haven't seen me deliver. It's just because they don't like me. And so it went really, really great. And it led to, I believe that summer, I had kind of been on the fence to do the Great American Festival. I was like on the bubble for for getting a spot at the Great American Festival. Gosh, what's the name of the town? It's Johnny Carson's hometown in Nebraska, Norfolk, Nebraska. 
And I ended up getting like, basically that pushed me over the edge for that. And I met a bunch of great people there. Just kind of like set things in motion little by little. Going from being like completely unknown, except for from comics that I'd worked with. Like I think I had lots of comedy friends who had come through Boston or I had seen when I was visiting New York or whatever. But this was the kind of thing that like, I worked with a bunch of comics out of town and just like, it like expanded my world little by little. And I was really, I felt really good about that set. I'm sure if I watched it now, I would be like, God, I can't believe I ever did those jokes. <laughs> but like for six years in, I feel like, oh yeah, I, I really, I really did it. No, it was amazing. And I don't tell the story about the other guy. I only mention that because it's like, you always have to believe in yourself. You sure. have to ignore everything that's the outside forces that are, you know, jibber jabbering and all that kind of stuff. And frankly, I never thought the other guy was that great. <laughs> uh, you know, I didn't, I don't even know who he is. I don't even remember. I don't remember. I never, I didn't even know him then. Anyway, so it was, it was amazing kind of thank you seeing you win. And then I remember after you won, you stopped talking to it. No, I'm just oh, yeah. <laughs> I cut everybody off. Cut everyone like, off. I want it was five hundred dollars. I think that's what it was. I think it was either five hundred thousand dollars <laughs> plus all this work on the road that like some came through, some didn't. They you know they kind of were like, hey, these clubs will book you, and then I had to chase that down on my own. And some of it was great. And like, oh man, wow, what a fun weekend at this club. And there were places that I just couldn't sell enough tickets to headline and was like relatively inexperienced. But like a few places that I came in as a feature and just had great experiences and worked with people that I really liked and admired and that was a blast and then other places where I was like this is a learning experience and I'm glad I did it but like wow this is you know there's a um a lyric by you know in a song by the hold steady that's about I mean the song is like kind of about film as a metaphor for like art and they talks about and they have a lot of songs kind of about that touch on like the experience of being in a band and the lyric is some nights it's just entertainment and some other nights it's work and like that you I really felt it on some of those nights where like you know there's that night where it's like oh it's a competition and people from the entertainment industry are here and tons of comedians from around the country are hanging out and like this is like showbiz we're we're in entertainment and then there's the nights where I'm like just getting you know headlining before I'm ready especially for certain rooms getting buried by my feature in uh in Chattanooga Tennessee and then eventually the club owner who hated me flip-flopping me with the feature who was like very funny and it had also been I believe at the Laughing Skull that year which is where I met him this dude Landry who just crushes it's funny yeah that's I've heard stories of that I remember there was an old story at a local club where Jon Stewart had to move from the headliner mm-hmm. to the feature I'm going back decades obviously oh I mean like yeah <laughs> Jon Stewart 2019 yeah 2019 John Stewart crushed by a by a feature who's like huge on TikTok <laughs> and I try to be like really honest about that because I do feel really fortunate in my career and I think I'm like a pretty good comedian but i think that there's like when you see the kind of narratives of people's success or whatever i just don't want to be one of those people that like leaves out the like bummer parts where you're just like yeah i just like this happened and i was off and running my life was amazing after that the only good stories are the ones where you completely fail like, those are the ones when i get together with my comedy friends those are the ones we tell nobody's interested in the, the perfect golden show no even like the moments that like went unexpectedly well on stage i think like you really just want to hear the disasters or the times that things went well and then you know i think like hey i had a great set and the only time that a story is good that starts that way is like then if some something bad happens to you immediately following i had a great set and then the club owner fired me because i i mentioned uh i have a 
joke about rhinoceroses and his father was trampled by a rhinoceros and he was just like i can't hear that you know what i mean like that kind of stuff is so funny to me but like yeah just like yeah best weekend of my life crushed it felt amazing you know that the my laughing skill story is like a boring story from my perspective like to tell because i'm just like yeah it was really exciting but it is like kind of a foundational like it was like the first thing in my career that was like a real credit in my bio that like traveled and, and wasn't just like oh you know like semi-finalist in the boston comedy festival is not nothing and I, I think they've really built that festival up over the years and people come from all over but like winner of this thing where i was not it was not a hometown thing for me you know like i think boston comedy festival there's like a ton of comics from boston every year so i kind of like you get in i think local comics have an advantage just like because they know it and they they don't have to pay to travel or anything so you just up they apply in huge numbers when you said earlier about kind of the places that you play and all that kind of stuff, I, I always I always laugh because it's like, you know, if someone's watching you on Facebook, not you, just any sure. kind of com- comedian, and uh, you only post the shows where you want people to know you're actually playing. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and that's like, that's so funny. I think that's like the, the social media aspect of it that's really fun. Because I, I really appreciate when people are like a little more honest about stuff. But like, I do feel like there's kind of, a, I do feel a pressure personally to not throw venues under the bus to not blah 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 to not make it look like i'm bad at the job but there's definitely times where i'm just like oh yeah i like really ate it this show or like i'm doing this show not in cities i don't mean like ugh chattanooga but i mean like oh i'm doing a show that's like on the roof of a hostel and you perform like a guy holds you by the back of your collar and you lean over the roof and you yell at people walking by on the sidewalk and i just like i needed a set so i said yes <laughs> like that kind of stuff you know what i mean i because i, I agree i think there's like a little curating of like ooh, this person only does the best comedy clubs and the most exclusive festivals and then but it's like i think it is helpful to be like oh yeah i also do a show that's like it's in the basement of a hospital for people who are waiting to who are like on heavy narcotics from surgery and waiting to be picked up from the hospital or whatever (laughs) in michigan we bunch of us were sitting around and we realized, oh, we're all named Jeff. Mm-hmm. And so we did the Jeff Comedy Jam, right? That's so funny. There were five, five Jeffs, the Jeff Comedy Jam. So I promoted the hell out of this show, okay? Yeah. And my buddy, Dan Lippett, arrives late to the show. He's like, sorry, I'm late. The way you were promoting this, I ended up at the theater across the street. It oh, happened to that's be a theater. so funny. We're at a bar with 15 people. Yep. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> and it's like he walks in the whole time during the show. He's just giving me this look like, really? This is the really? Jeff Comedy Jam. <laughs> this is the thing you've been talking about for months. Yeah. That was like, that breaks the rule in a sense. It's because the idea of the show was better than even where it was going to be. Totally. Because it was just, a, it was a whole camaraderie thing, you know? <laughs> Andy Sanford, who I met, I'd met before Laughing School because I think he'd come to Boston. And then he was the one that was like, oh, you should apply to this. You, you This is worth your time. Very generous of him to, to think of me for it. He, I think this was at Laughing Skull, coined the term, because there's the common term of like a hell gig, right? Oh, this gig was bad. The money was bad. The audiences are bad. It's far away. And you have to, you know, you have to drive eight hours to this gig and they don't give you a hotel. That's the hell gig. And I I think it was there that as far as I know, he coined the term swell gig for like a real nice setup where it's like, yeah, they like order you dinner from this local restaurant and the green room's super comfortable.
comfortable and like it's kind of the only game in town so they always get 300 people and packing up this little theater and I, I just that's kind of what made me think of it of just like the idea of like the gigs you brag about versus the gigs that you do because that's the job some nights it's work right and so and I don't think people even normal people even understand sometimes what we have to go through to get that money I remember playing a bowling alley mm-hmm. I'm headlining a bowling alley. That's not an impressive <laughs> sentence. And I pull up. It's in the middle of nowhere, mm-hmm. like literal nowhere. I drive by 100,000 cars. I'm like, damn. But no, those 100,000 cars aren't at the bowling alley. They're at the high school across the street because their team is going to the championships or something. Oh, no. There is four drunk people at this bowling alley. But here's where it gets worse. This is what we had is the owners go, yeah, yeah, go ahead. Yeah, do the show. Do the show. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I was just talking about this last night with somebody. I remember early on in my career being in Boston still and, and you just book gigs. The kind of conventional wisdom is that like summer's tough right people go to less comedy people just want to like be outside and on vacation and they're not just looking to like get like get out on a weekend night and go sit inside they want to be like up in maine at a cabin fishing and such stuff like that and then it's like okay well the summer's tough and then the red Sox are sometimes in the playoffs and that kind of kills it or like the patriots are in the playoffs like playoff games will kind of kill a comedy night in boston because people are like yeah the the celtics are in the finals why am i going to go out and see a guy i've never heard of tell joke but then then the winter is bad too that's the other season but they don't because there's there's nights where the weather is so bad they don't want to cancel because it's like okay we've got 50 reservations and we have their money and if we cancel we have to give it back so we need the comics to get there so i was driving you know i was probably driving 20 miles an hour on the highway during a blizzard i saw a car there's like a christmas tree that had just fallen off a truck and was in the middle of the highway and i saw a car like bombing down the right lane because i was in the middle going slow bombing down the right lane hits the christmas tree spins out into a ditch and i'm just like like, I'm risking this for a hundred dollar <laughs> feature set. Like anything, like so many bad things could happen that would cost me more than that, including like my life. And I'm just like white knuckling on my steering wheel, 20 miles an hour, takes an hour and a half to make a, you know, to make a 30 minute drive just to eat it in front of the 20 people that showed up. <laughs> I have many, many I'm going to die in the snow. What am I doing? Yeah. What am I doing? Why am I doing this? Like people love me. I should be with them. (laughs) I have family and friends. That's funny. But that's, that's, yeah, I think there's so, there's so much of, of that in standup of just like those, I mean, especially like I still have it to an extent. Like, I don't think it ever really goes away as long as you're doing it. Right. Because like there are those times at the beginning of your career where you're so hungry, you're like, I can't say no to this. I can't cancel because then I'm the guy that cancels day of, even though the weather's bad. Like, they don't care about that. They just care that I'm the flake. And so, and then I I mean, I think it gets to a point where where the the money gets big. I mean, I've heard there's a point where the money gets really good in stand-up and for some people. And then you can't cancel because you're leaving so much money on the table. I feel like I'm in a perfect pocket where I should be canceling more gigs is what I'm saying. Because <laughs> I'm in between those two phases. You've had a lot of writing gigs, right? So you spent many, many years uh, last week tonight with John Oliver. Mm -hmm. Big fan of that show. How did you how did you score that? Like, what was the process of becoming part of that show? So I had kind of like a viral social media thing that happened. I had a Twitter account that I started with a friend. and Seinfeld Today? The, yeah, the, the at Seinfeld Today, the modern Seinfeld Twitter account. And that kind of blew up overnight and kind of, it was like the second thing. It was like, I had Laughing Skull as a credit. And then this happened, I guess, two years later, maybe? Late 2012. And... 
or, you, you know, year and a half, two years later. And that was like the first thing that like, I could feel when I would go on stage and be like, this guy, he's um co-writer of the modern Seinfeld Twitter account. People would be like, huh, like, like, oh, I know that, which was ridiculous, like very, very unexpected, very silly. But like that kind of got me in the conversation to get to apply to more writing gigs. And so I spent basically all of 2013 applying to writing jobs, which for a late night show like that for, you know, Jimmy Fallon, Seth Meyers, Amber Ruffin, John Oliver, you do a packet of submission materials, most of the time specific to the show. And so I did probably like 19 or 20 of those in a year from January of 2013 to the end of the year. And the last one I did that year was for, I I got to do a tiny amount of work on Billy on the Street, which is very exciting. That was like my first any kind of work in TV. And that was, that was very thrilling. And then I got asked to do a second submission for Last Week Tonight in early 2014. And I, I did, I like, I sent another set of materials in and I was kind of, I, the way I, I was made to understand I was like ninth on a list of eight for writers. And so because I'd had this kind of experience writing for the internet between the Seinfeld stuff and the like having written freelance magazine and like humor pieces for websites and such I was hired to run the social media digital stuff for for last week tonight so I was there for a year and then I got moved over to the writing staff when they had the budget to hire another writer after the first season because the first season was was very successful and then I stayed there as a staff writer for four years so that was kind of the the process from being again more or less a nobody to like getting my first first job, which was really exciting. And I think like it was made possible by the fact that they were looking for eight writers because they had no writers. It was a brand new show. And so your chances are just like so much higher. You know what I mean? Whether it's like if there are however many probably like a few hundred people applied for that, you're going from like a one in 300 chance to like an eight in 300 chance, which is like literally eight times the opportunities. That's awesome. We have to take a quick break for our sponsors. And we're back with Josh Gondelman about to dive a little deeper into his Twitter sensation Seinfeld today. And we're back. Let's talk about Seinfeld today. Sure. Um, I had that written down, but I didn't realize it was the origin to the John Oliver. Otherwise, it would have gone in that order. Yeah. I mean, it kind of got me. It like really got me into the conversation for these kind of jobs in a way that like I'd kind of been waiting. I, I would occasionally be asked like a friend of mine who was a manager would go, hey, Chelsea Handler show is looking for people. Do you want to do you want me to send in an application for you? And I go, oh, yeah, sure. Thanks. And then, you know, very rarely did that lead to anything for me, just I think because I didn't have that much practice. And then this was kind of the thing that cemented my relationship with my representatives at the time that let kind of gave me the a little bit of buzz that made them go like, oh, this is a guy that we should like keep giving these opportunities to. That's awesome. Yeah. So why did you stop in 2015? Because oh, you you have like this, you amassed over 700. Yeah, I think at the peak, it was like 800 something thousand followers. So it's just sitting there now. Yeah, I think uh, Jacqueline and I both got busy is like the real answer. Like it kind of just ran its course where like, we did it for a couple years. And it became like, okay, well, how long are we going to devote creative bandwidth to this kind of like silly gimmicky thing, which is like a very fun project. And I'm super grateful for what it did for us but it is kind of like if not like a showcase for a one trick pony maybe a three trick pony <laughs> and so it just kind of became like okay how we we both are working in tv at this point we're both developing our own projects how much energy are we going to spend being like okay what would kramer like what how would kramer post or what, what would kramer's tinder bio be <laughs> you know what i mean and there's just like it just became less of a it became a lower priority and we just kind of stopped cold turkey instead of posting once every three months or whatever 
And you won a Shorty Award for that? We did. Yeah, I have it behind me. It's um, it's a very nice glass whale's tail is the award. That's pretty awesome. But that's not the only award you won. So you've also won, <laughs> this is so impressive, Peabody Award for last yeah. week tonight. Mm-hmm. How many, did I say four Emmy Awards? Four Emmy Awards is correct. Where do, you, yeah. where do you keep those Emmy Awards? I have, so we have a dresser in this little office that I'm in, and I it's like on top of the dresser, all the awards, except one, a bunch of the Last Week Tonight writers, I think after the show had such a, is, and is still having such a successful run, that a bunch of the writers gave an Emmy to their parents to like display if they wanted. And my, so I, there's one at my parents' house that like as a compromise between my mom and dad is like behind a picture of me and my sister kind of poking over the top of the picture frame. Which is, like, exactly how I would choose to display it. Like, I think the way that it is now, like, with all... I'm, I'm like, so flattered to have won so many awards. It's not like, ugh, isn't this gauche? But I do think it's, like, a bunch of golden trophies really dominate the decor of a room. So it feels more appropriate to have them, like, kind of up out of the way in the office than to, like, put them all on a bookshelf in the living room and, like, make it a conversation starter. So you have one sister. You have a sister? I have one sister. Do you, have you ever, like, considered making your parents introduce you as our Emmy award-winning son, Josh, but only when your sister is around. My sister is a doctor. Got She has a doctorate in physical therapy, which she got like before my, and she's, she's three years younger than I am. And there was a brief period where she was like the one that, the only, the one of the two of us that had it together. Like now it's both of us, we're both doing well in our lives. But there was a period where she got her doctorate in like 2012, I want to say, and was like a practicing physical therapist with a job at a major hospital. And I was like really scraping by in New York doing comedy and like tutoring on the side and writing a little bit and going on the road for low money and just kind of like really hoping it was going to happen. And so she definitely was like a success professionally before I was for sure. All right. So four Emmy Awards, Writers Guild of America Awards, a Peabody Award, a Shorty Award. Finally, you've worked so hard to make your parents proud of you. <laughs> Compared to your sister. <laughs> That's all. I, look, I'm just trying to keep up with my sister being Dr. Gondelman. <laughs> That's it. <laughs> oh, that's funny. So on Last Week Tonight with John Oliver, is it is it all collaborative? Is that how you write on that show? Is there is there any, or is there like, no, Josh Gondelman wrote this? Uh, or is it kind of like you? There are stories where I think individual writers have more of a guiding hand or more jokes in. And like the process is not all collaborative like it's not like every story gets written by everybody in the room at the same time but it is collaborative by the end of by the time it makes it to air it has been a collaboration there is a story that's pitched and then it's approved by john and by tim carvel who's an executive producer and there's a producer who's assigned to like call footage and really find video that helps tell the story and then there's a producer that works on the research for the kind of you know like looking to see like what is this story really is it what we think it is is there a surprising twist that we don't know about is there are there common misconceptions that we don't want to hit what can we factually say and then there are usually two to three writers assigned especially for the big stories and the writers write drafts independently but like while in conversation with each other and then and then john and tim edit and 
revise and make new asks of, you know, the rest of the team on the story and the writers take another pass. And then the writer's room will punch up jokes where they're like, you know, this joke needs a little something more or like we need a new joke because we added a new fact or or piece of video footage. So it is really collaborative, even though the work is a lot of the time kind of independent. Like when you're writing a draft, it's like a couple days to outline by yourself other than a couple meetings, a couple days to write a draft by yourself other than with a couple meetings. It's not, you know, the 30 Rock writer's room. I think that's like the kind of that or the, you know, wherever Dick Van Dyke, where you see a bunch of people just like, oh, what about this? Uh, How about this thing? So it's even though it is at at many points in the process, kind of solitary with your writing and your outlining and and all that and like looking over materials and, and kind of like picking what you want to include in the story. It ends up being very collaborative because there's so many different people working on it at the same time from different angles, like, you know, different responsibilities on the staff. And then in the writer's room, writing jokes together for a long time. And so you're, you know, in the writer's room writing jokes together, like over the weekend, because the show airs on Sunday. So that is like, that's like the part that feels the most collaborative is just like being in the room with the other writers, which is very fun. I did notice on your IMDb, you were on At Midnight. Yes. I I was obsessed with At Midnight because I was like, I think uh, 12, 13 times I made it to the final top 10, but I never won. And oh. you know what I'm talking about, right? Where they pay and... Mm-hmm. With yeah, on the yeah. On Twitter and stuff like with the social media, yeah, submitting on social media. And what what kills me is my buddy, you know, who also would play, not a comedian, won freaking three times, three times. That's so funny. and I have other friends that won multiple times, and I could never. I'd always get there. I'm like, oh, this is it. This is my night. Wake up, you wait up. I'd wait up, <laughs> watch it, and it was and it was right, never me. Late. And at some point, I'm like, this is somebody's. This is personal. <laughs> <laughs> I got to do it once and I like flew out. I think I flew out and back in a day, maybe like definitely flew home after the taping red eye. So I could be at work at last week tonight, the next day. It was, it was really fun. I, they, I got to write with, I think Chelsea Davidson was the writer that I was paired with. Who's great. And I was on with Randy Lidke and Kyle Kinane. So it was like great to see people that I really liked and thought were really funny and like play with them. And so it was like a good vibe for the taping. It wasn't just, oh, I don't know these people. So I don't know what way we can interact. You know, I think it's sometimes tricky, even on a podcast to be on with a bunch of people. And you're like, I don't know the the dynamics. And I don't know people's comfort zones, not in terms of like saying edgy, risque stuff, but just in terms of like how much give and take there is, how, how like fake competitive to be that kind of thing and so it was nice to be on with people that i was like oh i know that these people are very funny and they won't they're not taking it intensely seriously they're not like trying to crush me and they know that if i'm joking around it's not because i'm trying to usurp them (laughs) writer and producer for desus and marrow on showtime did you leave last week tonight for this role i did and then uh Mm -hmm. what what made you kind of say oh here's here's the new opportunity i i I know they probably after five years you're like ready to make a move i imagine yeah i mean i think that i'd had such a great and fulfilling run at last week tonight and i worked with people that i really love and admire and and a lot of people i'm still in touch with and just like think we're just such great colleagues and, and people i learned a lot from and after five years, four with the same job title, I felt like I was still getting better, right? Like I could still improve as a writer for that show. But there weren't really like opportunities to learn fully new skills. Like the the writers weren't going to get opportunities for the most part to like produce something that out in the world, like a sketch or something. And we wouldn't we weren't getting a lot of opportunities to like look at the edit of pieces, like, you know, little bits here and there. But I really wanted to be more hands on with that kind of stuff. I think if I had been 
been at that job and been like, this is the only thing I ever want to do in comedy. I wish I could stay here for my whole career. You know, if I, if I could stay here 20 years, I would. But I think I was like, this is really pretty in the grand scheme of jobs. It wasn't ice road trucking. That's more mm-hmm. like stand up. <laughs> but I, all the comedy is like pretty light in terms of like physical labor. But I do think like it was a pretty rigorous job in terms of like really engaging with the news, which is bad a lot of the time and like really staring it down and writing into it and I was like you know if I could move on to a job that like leans away from just the devastating truth of the world so that I don't have to deal with it professionally every day as much as in addition to like coping with it as a human being with a heart and a brain I would like to try that for a little while and so I also wanted I didn't want to leave just to leave like I didn't want to leave and like get a job you know writing and producing on like VH1's top farts of the 90s or whatever is the fake show I always use so I got this opportunity to interview with Jesus and Marrow and I was like yeah this sounds really exciting they're so funny it would be a writer producer job like kind of a super supervising role. I'd learn new skills. I would work in kind of a different tone. And it wouldn't be like, I, I got a couple offers while I was still there at Last Week Tonight of like, hey, we're doing this show that we want it to be like John Oliver's show, but for history. Or we want to do it like John Oliver's show, but for science. And I was just like, um, I don't really want to do that. Like, I, I don't want to like chase this show somewhere else. And so it was a perfect opportunity to do something that is like with hosts I really like and enjoy and think are so funny and, and talented, but that with a total totally different feel to my last job. You have an old project that I loved. Wiki what? <laughs> oh, yeah, that was really fun. That was really funny. I was. Are you a sports guy? I am a sports guy. You had Kate Upton on your show. Beautiful. Yes. Love Kate Upton. She's from Michigan. Yeah. So this is how much I know about sports. We're in, I'm in Birmingham, Michigan. I'm looking. We're in a restaurant. I look over and I say to everyone, oh, my God, look, there's Kate Upton. So that must be Justin Verlander. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Yeah, because he was still pitching for the Tigers, yes, I yes, think, yes. When, this I, was before. when I talked to her. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, when they were, yeah, she was a, talking about being a Tigers fan, yeah. Yeah, she was very nice. She had had like, I think she was just like doing press. So it was pretty exhausted. But her dog was like the most well-trained dog I've ever encountered. This like beautiful 60 pound boxer. And and Kate was very gracious, like had no reason to do this thing with me that like I was doing, I guess it was like technically for Esquire, but it kind of just like lived in Hearst Digital Ether on YouTube. Or no, you know what it was? It was Facebook like produced it with Hearst as when Facebook Watch came out where Facebook was like, we're going to make our own show. And this was like in that and they did fine. They weren't like it wasn't like, oh, these got like 200 views. It was like, oh, a couple of them were, you know, 300, 500,000 views. But I think they were just like, this is not worth the money we spend on it. So we only made five ever. And then they were like, they invited me after we wrapped that first run of five. They invited me to this big like Hearst Digital launch. And they like introduced, they were like, and Josh Gondelman, who hosts one of our shows. And I was like, hey, this is fun. We'll keep doing this. And then uh, never heard from them again. <laughs> yeah, she was a good sport. She looked like she was having a good time. She was a good sport. You were, I saw TJ Miller was was on an episode i had the opportunity to mc yeah. for tj miller once and mm-hmm. that guy's hilarious it was a pretty chaotic interview and he's kind of like i know he's kind of there that there have been some you know allegations and stuff that it's like he seems like he's a kind of a 
a troubling figure. But the interview, I think he was, he recognized me from stand-up like we'd been on shows together. So I think he was like, he toned the chaos down to like an 8 out of 10 instead of his normal 12. But it was like all over the place. It was like a very intense, like when it was the first one we did. So I was just kind of sitting there being like, "Uh uh-huh, okay. Oh, that was Um, your first episode? Yeah. (laughs) It was the first episode, yeah. And it was, I'm trying to think, it was was TJ and then it was, um, I don't remember the order exactly, but John Bradley from Game of Thrones, who played Sam on Game of Thrones, was awesome. He was the most fun interview. And then Lawrence Gilliard Jr. from The Wire and Walking Dead, he was on. And then Kate and Adam Conover. And I think that was the full run. That's awesome. You have have a lot of no longer active, amazing projects. Oh, thank you. I mean, like, I think that's just a function of like, I've gotten some really fun and exciting opportunities over years. And I've been doing this for like a, an embarrassingly long time. Let's let's pitch some of your stuff though, real quick. You have two books. Yes. You have three albums. Yes. All available at joshgondelman.com or Amazon's or all that mm-hmm. kind of stuff. I'll put links. Yeah, we're I'll put good. links in the show notes to each one of them. Oh, so you have you. that. But you also have an amazing podcast, Make My Day Podcast. It's a comedy game show. Yeah. That show is so fun. It's the premise is right. It's a comedy game show where there's only one contestant. If there's more than one contestant, they're playing on a team. And so the contestant always wins. It's very low stakes in that way and each contestant sets the game's all-time high score so it it, the high score is just escalating week after week i think the first episode was like 36 points and now the most recent one was like 1700 points it's really great so i do encourage anyone it's a a good pick-me-up it's it's meant to bring positivity in the world one of the one of the goals is to bring happiness to josh yeah i just want people to be delightful and like i really just want it to be like i always kind of feel like the i don't want to make entertainment that is like fun in ignorance of how difficult a place the world can be a lot of the time for a lot of people I kind of want to do stuff that is like fun and light and enthusiastic in spite of that which is a slight difference but I think it's like the difference between being like oh yeah it's going to be fine we're all fine like this the bad stuff is like you know it happens but it's for other people or like it's not that bad and being like yeah things are bad and like let's try to to make them a little better and a a little gentler and and kinder awesome so much josh gondelman you can bring into your life ladies and gentlemen (laughs) josh where can people keep up with you on the socials i'm at josh gondelman g-o-n-d-e-l man on twitter and instagram i think i'm legally too bald to be on tiktok that's where you can find me on social so everyone check out joshgondelman.com and uh, all of Josh's albums are streaming everywhere and can be bought everywhere as well. Josh, thank you so much for hanging out with me. Oh, thanks for having me. This was a real treat. It was really nice to chat. All right, Josh Gondelman, everyone. How amazing is Josh? One of the nicest people in the world and one of the most hilarious as well. Head on over to joshgondelman.com for all his albums, all his goodness, his tour schedule. If he comes to your town, definitely check Josh out live. Josh has a new comedy special out called People Pleaser. You can check that out. You can download that from his website as well. Time to get some Josh Gondelman into your life. You won't regret it. Well, can't believe it. With the interview over, that can only mean one thing. That's right. Episode 194 has come to a close. I can't believe it either. Thanks again to my special guest, Josh Gondelman. And thanks to all of you for coming back week after week. It means the world to me. And I'll see you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Classic Conversations. If you like what you heard, don't be shy and give us a follow on your favorite podcast app. 
So why not go ahead and tell all your friends about the show? You strike us as the kind of person that people listen to. Thanks in advance for spreading the word. And we'll catch you next time on Classic Conversations.